I'm Barbara Bogave, and you're listening to How Governments Can Help or Harm Entrepreneurs on America Abroad. It's an entrepreneur's dream. You go online, you file your article of association, and you get a tax number. So everything is in a few minutes. That's all it takes to start a company in Singapore, the easiest place in the world to do business, says a recent World Bank ranking. The key? Lots of government reforms to help with mundane but really critical things, like untangling property rights, getting electricity, or enforcing construction contracts. By the way, the United States does pretty well in this ranking. It comes in at number four, and that may be because entrepreneurship is an American theme, as it was in President Obama's last State of the Union address. An entrepreneur flipped on the lights in her tech startup and did her part to add to the more than eight million new jobs our businesses have created over the past four years. Entrepreneurship is hailed as a way to reduce unemployment and preserve our competitive edge abroad. But how does government work best to promote new businesses and keep them afloat, especially here in the U.S., the world's largest economy? Politicians tend to celebrate such things as government-sponsored enterprise zones and business incubators. One of the reasons why you see so many young entrepreneurs coming up with such great ideas that end up getting to market is because of the government support and projects like the incubators. But in the large scheme of things, these zones and incubators may be fairly limited in their ability to create new entrepreneurs. In the next hour, we delve into what works and what doesn't when governments get involved, and we compare those efforts to those around the world. We start with Youngstown, Ohio, a city that's still trying to recover from the collapse of the steel industry nearly 40 years ago. It's responded by creating an innovation hub with the help of President Obama. We created our first manufacturing innovation institute in Youngstown, Ohio. A once shuttered warehouse is now a state-of-the-art lab where new workers are mastering the 3D printing that has the potential to revolutionize the way we make almost everything. The Institute is funded by $70 million of corporate and federal money and now known as America Makes. Stephen Adams is the president of the American Institute for Economic Research, and he spent five years in an unusual federal agency called the Office of Advocacy. It's part of the Small Business Administration. I asked him about Mr. Obama's mention of innovation hubs. He wasn't enthusiastic. Well, I can't say I know the details of the president's plan in depth, but to me it sounded like the rebirth of enterprise zones, which seems to be sort of the zombie economic development idea. Uh, They keep uh, killing these things and they keep coming back. So just to be clear, enterprise zones were developed in the 1980s. Unlike incubators and innovation hubs, these usually meant a geographic area that was suffering, like a city or a region. The government would go in and extend tax breaks to entice private sector investment to that hard-hit area. But to Adams, even though zones may be different from hubs and incubators in structure, they're similar in their shortcomings. They tend to be very showy, but they don't tend to result in a lot of economic results. We'll come back to Adams, but first we take a closer look at the institute America makes. It's not expressly geared towards entrepreneurship, but its partner, a Youngstown-based small business incubator, is. Now WCPN's David Barnett looks at the effect the partnership has had on the economy. 
The Youngstown Business Incubator, or YBI, provides the basics that a young company would need, such as office space, telephones, computers, internet, and video conferencing for free or greatly reduced rates. It is a high-functioning incubator in that the tenants also have access to learning labs and a network of 7,000 business professionals. It's funded by a combination of federal, state, and private money. We've gone from two and a half floors of this five-story building in 2001 to over 120,000 square feet in four buildings, all interconnected. As CEO of YBI, Jim Kostler plays mother hen to a collection of tech startup firms in some old downtown buildings, long abandoned but now buzzing with activity. So it, it kind of put the play in. So this is retail dry goods here. YBI has been identified as one of the top incubators in the world because it is very selective about who it lets in and sets high performance standards. So far, the incubator's startups have generated close to $76 million in sales and created or supported more than 600 jobs. With all the heat YBI has gotten, it's no accident that the Manufacturing Institute, called America Makes and hailed by the president, has been located on YBI's campus. Humtown Products is one of the projects approved by America Makes. They specialize in 3D printing. If you go there, you can see the computer image of an automotive part being built. A printhead goes back and forth, spraying successive layers of plastic on top of each other, gradually creating a three-dimensional object. America Makes, also considered an innovation hub, is like a test kitchen where consortiums of university researchers and corporations get access to very expensive machinery to experiment with different aspects of 3D printing. This is strictly research and has little, if any, immediate impact on jobs, so it's not really surprising that Cleveland Federal Reserve economist Joel Elvery says the potential of 3D technology on Youngstown's job growth is limited. Many regions have tried. Few have had successful harnessing of technology and federal research spending to really grow their region. It's, it's a difficult thing. Moreover, Elvery suggests that all the cheerleading should be tempered by the reality that new technology comes with a cost. One of the risks of this sort of focus on manufacturing that the Obama administration's had is that people have in mind that these plants are going to come and these plants will have many, many jobs. The way that manufacturing works nowadays is that there's fewer and fewer people. And so whereas you got an auto part plant in you know, 1990, that might mean 500 jobs or 600 jobs. You get an auto part plant now, it means 100 to 200 jobs. Still, longtime Youngstown resident Presley Gillespie is optimistic about the potential for local jobs and says it's great to see downtown come alive with new shops, restaurants, and apartments catering to the young tech workers at the incubator. But as executive director of the Youngstown Neighborhood Development Corporation, Gillespie says he hasn't seen any of that prosperity trickle outside of the central city. There are jobs, I believe, being created and opportunities, but we need to figure out how to make sure that those jobs are accessible by the residents that live in our neighborhoods because we still have high concentrations of poverty. The area still has an unemployment rate of 7.6 percent and lost 400 jobs last year. That's still a long way from a thriving economy. In Ohio, I'm David C. Barnett for America Abroad.
Stephen Adams wouldn't be surprised by this conclusion. He's the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. I asked him why innovation hubs and incubators aren't in general effective. Isn't the idea of geographic proximity and clustering important to innovation? It absolutely is the way innovation happens, and it's sort of the general idea of trying to cluster smart people and, and companies that have similar interests together makes a lot of sense. The The thing that doesn't ever work is government trying to manage that or engineering that. Those typically are very successful when they happen organically, when market forces are at play and where people are betting their own money and energy and ideas and they generate innovation. Uh, often when we try to force it with government programs or they're trying to locate people or, or drive government money into programs, you're basically uh, trying to supplement or complement what the market's going to do anyway. And uh, so they have not been very successful. Uh, it's just not the best way for government to put its time and energy if they're trying to promote innovation or entrepreneurship. Is that because government can't find the winning horse to bet on, or is it because of the funding model that administrations change and funding is uncertain and, and can suddenly go away? And then what happens to your innovation hub? Well, I think it's because what government is most effective at and good at are the things that they tend not to put into these programs. So government is uh, especially structured to uh, have effective legal systems where people's rights can be protected, patent rights or property rights can be protected. You have a legal system where you might have business courts or other kinds of uh, court and legal systems that where entrepreneurs might have an opportunity to protect their rights in that situation. Or you might have a regulatory structure where government should focus its energy on being really efficient about the way that it regulates uh, companies and individuals and ideas. And uh, those are the things that government can do effectively. When it comes to financing, the United States has probably the most efficient capital markets on the planet. And uh, ideas that need financing and deserve financing, that the market proves will work, will get financing. If you look at census data, and the last time they asked businesses about where they got their startup money, Less than 1% of businesses got their startup money from government-supported programs. And that's slightly more than get venture capital. So government does flashy things with capital, but it's not where most companies get started. They get their capital from their, their own savings and from the private sector. And when government spends money on things that aren't in their wheelhouse, financing and other ways that are driving uh, government resources to companies – um, they're doing things that aren't inside their expertise level, and they're trying to supplant the market, which is really effective at picking winners and uh, making people uh, make it their own investments, put their own skin in the game, and uh, do the things that it takes to be successful in an entrepreneurial environment. Why is this the idea, then, that won't die? Why does government keep coming back to this innovation hub or enterprise zone idea? Well, I think because it's really um, more interesting than the mundane things of government. So if you pick a geography, you can um, benefit a very tiny, small number of businesses, but you've picked a geography. So everybody in that geography feels good. You've now got friends in that geography. And government activity works best where it's local. And so people uh, benefit from picking a geography. The second reason that this happens is because it's much more interesting, it's more sexy to talk about financing than it is about the mundane issues of making sure the regulatory process is efficient, making sure companies get curb cuts when they need it, or making sure that the permit inspector shows up on time. The things that really matter to companies, 
it's not very exciting. It's hard to run for governor or run for president on making sure curb cuts get done. It's much more exciting to say, hey, we have this cool fund or this cool venture capital fund, and uh, it's much more interesting and gets more attention. Makes sense. Okay, well, let's get unsexy then and talk about these very mundane aspects of government. And it sounds to me like many of the things that you're advocating add up to a kind of caretaker approach uh, with government support. Uh, Government as a protector of businesses taking a risk with innovation that likely takes time to develop. What I'm getting at is, you know, government playing the role that it's best suited for. And for instance, the two things that I've been talking about, one is sort of the regulatory environment and one is uh, protecting the intellectual property rights of entrepreneurs. And let's talk about the regulatory environment. Um, a lot of people will say, gee, we got to keep regulations as low as possible so government businesses don't have to spend a lot of money on regulation. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, regulations need to uh, – the appropriate regulations need to be at the level that they need to be there to protect public interest, whether it's public safety or worker safety or financial uh, consumers or what have you. You need the regulations that are in place to meet public interest. But what's really crucial is the government's really efficient about the way they implement those regulations so that they be attentive to smaller firms. Most regulations are built with very large corporations in mind. And so the legal hassles, the paperwork, the reporting, the testing, all those things that large corporations find relatively easy become extremely expensive for a very small business or an entrepreneur to be able to finance. And so it's not very interesting to evaluate your regulatory process with small businesses in mind. But it makes a huge difference to a small firm that now might have to spend tens of thousands of dollars to comply with some important regulation that wouldn't mean anything to Google but would mean a lot to some small startup. Uh, Those things take time. It means uh, it's not exciting to adapt your regulatory process, but it could mean the difference between a company succeeding and failing just because the regulatory burden on them is higher than some large firm with a team of lawyers or a team of engineers in place. Stephen Adams, the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. His skepticism about the success of government-funded entrepreneurial programs, specifically incubators, is not shared by everyone, though. There are more than 1,200 of these incubators nationwide. They're funded by a combination of local government agencies, universities, and sometimes federal grants, though no one knows how much local money goes into them. Adam Hochberg reports. The quest for good-paying jobs has sparked the growth of incubators all over the country and led the federal government to invest a total of $60 million in them in the past five years. Still, there's little hard data on how well incubators achieve their two main goals, fostering new companies and putting people to work. And the research that does exist is inconsistent. Running an incubator takes a lot of resources, and it's unclear whether it's a good investment in the long term. Syracuse University management professor Alejandro Amesqua looked at more than 1,000 incubators and found the average company employed fewer than five people and was no more likely to succeed in an incubator than in a regular office park or in somebody's attic. Out of the companies that I looked at, which are about 18,500, 42% of them go out of business by their fourth year, which is likely a parallel statistic when you look at the general trends among all startups. People who run incubators reject those findings and counter with studies of their own, including a 2008 Commerce Department report that concluded incubators create jobs better than any of the other public works projects the department funds. 
Dinah Atkins is the former president of the National Business Incubation Association. We know anecdotally and we know by record keeping in local communities that there have been thousands and thousands of businesses developed in incubators now. And there are incubators all over the country that are having success and creating jobs. One of the reasons the research on incubators varies so much is that the incubators themselves vary a lot. While some provide classes, guidance, and in a few cases, direct subsidies to entrepreneurs, others do little more than rent office space. Atkins says the bottom line is that well-managed incubators deliver results, and substandard ones often don't. The business incubation program itself needs to be run like a business in terms of budgeting and revenues and all that kind of stuff. The management has to be tied into the business community because this isn't a social service that you're providing. You're providing business assistance services. Those business assistance services are a big part of what's now the fastest growing group of incubators, those affiliated with colleges, like this one at the University of North Carolina. Amesqua found college-based incubators among the most successful, perhaps because they emphasize teaching and mentoring. Joel Bush established his commercial laundry business at UNC's center, even though he had already started nine businesses on his own. No matter how many times you've done it, you have a million questions about the right way to do it or the latest trends or whatever. And so this kills several birds with one stone. Here for me, you've got great advisors who are willing to help us get our feet under us first. UNC's center, called Launch Chapel Hill, is less than a year old, and entrepreneurship professor Ted Zoller says it tried to avoid the mistakes of earlier government-owned incubators. In fact, Zoller doesn't call it an incubator at all, but rather a business accelerator, a term borrowed from private sector operations that provide venture capital to young businesses. Launch doesn't fund companies, but Zoller runs it with an investor's mentality. He gives entrepreneurs six months to form their companies and move out, instead of the three years they might spend in an incubator. I think that largely incubation is a flawed model. I think what we found with the first round of incubators that were built is, you know, they're given all of the financial assets to build what could be a company without ever testing the proposition of the business. Uh, whereas Launch Chapel Hill, you can't come here unless you've already started to test it. And then we're giving you tools to help you test it in a better way. Zoller says while government can play a role in fostering entrepreneurship, it has to be realistic and understand that young businesses can only affect the local economy modestly, especially if they're replacing a traditional employer like a textile mill or steel plant. Zoller says some cities create incubators with what he calls a field of dreams attitude, simply believing that if they build it, jobs will come. And those communities, he says, likely will be disappointed. In Chapel Hill, North Carolina, I'm Adam Hochberg for America Abroad.